There'll be spectacle, there'll be fantasy, there'll be daring do and stuff like you would never see. Hey, a movie! Yeah, we're gonna be a movie! Starring everybody and me! There'll be heroes bold, there'll be comedy, and a lot of fuss that ends for us real happily. And watch it all develop Starring everybody And me We'll take the world And set it on its ear Come on, join in We're gonna start right here And we are gonna start right here Hello and welcome to another triple feature A Rattle Broadcasting Network Premiere Podcast I am your host The man did a reporter And frankly, I'm mortified Mr. Mark Rattledge. And this is yet another in our slate of black history month specific podcast yes we're celebrating black cinema the good the bad the ugly the black exploitation the high art the oscar nominated the Catwoman, all of it here on the rattledge and broadcasting network and joining me on this journey of the exploration of black cinema from the from the past to the present to the future is the one and only jason teasley how do you do sir Doing good, Mark. Doing good. How about yourself? Everything going good on your end of the world, I hope. Oh, sure. And, uh, <laughs> everything's, everything's great. <laughs> oh, well, we're going to talk some uh, black exploitation. So that's going to be that's going to be fun. So let me ask you. So I, I've talked about in the past that I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood until I was 12 years old. Uh, and the neighborhood I grew up in was Uniondale, New York, which was a suburb of Long Island. Um, it's in Nassau County. It's where a lot of people who, when, um, people got their like world war II money to buy houses moved out to, and then when more people from the city were able to get buy houses and move out to the suburbs, um, those, the first wave of people moved further East and then, uh, new people moved in. And by that point, it was like, again, predominantly the African-American and then to a lesser extent, the, uh, um, Hispanic population of the five boroughs. So where I grew up, like I said, was predominantly black and and I lived there till I was 12 and I grew up in the 80s. So I was, you know, I was four in 1980 and uh, I grew up like with listening to East Coast rap music like Run DMC and LL Cool J and the Fat Boys as as Jesse and I have talked about. But I also grew up with a lot of the movies that were popular coming out of the 70s and while you know life would go on and i uh i would get move away from some of that stuff and then eventually like i said we moved to the white neighborhood when dvds became popular uh all of these old movies from the 70s started getting put on dvd and there was this like renaissance of stuff for film people to dig into and it was easy to access because it was all it was available at like your local big box yeah. um record store like tower records or something so my point with all of that preamble was that i used to go digging into the tower records on a friday night that's how i used to spend my friday nights jason teasley i would go digging through the dvd racks racks upon racks upon racks looking for like roger corman movies and then there was this entire subsection called soul cinema and soul cinema ran the gamut of the three movies that we're going to talk about tonight, but so many more. Like if you've ever seen the Wikipedia page for the list of black exploitation movies, it goes on forever. And I was well steeped in those movies for a very, very long time. So what say you, when I proposed that when we decided we were going to, you know, dedicate a series of shows this month to black history, to black cinema for black history month. 
And I was like, we're going to do one show focusing on just the black exploitation genre. Did you have any idea what any of this was? Had you seen any of it before? Did you know what I was talking about? I knew the genre. Never mm-hmm. have seen a, a movie from the genre. That's why it kind of piqued my interest because I know you're well versed in it. So it mm-hmm. was kind of an education thing for me uh, to join you because, like I said, you know, like you're just going over, you have an extensive history, one with the area that a lot of these films pertain to, as mm-hmm. well as, um, you know, some insights to the black exploitation because. You grew up on it. I I lived a sheltered life. Uh, now, <laughs> uh, as far as as far, far as black exploitation movies go, because uh, now rap music, you know, I grew up uh, listening to like Too Short, Run mm-hmm. DMC. That I, I was exposed to all that, but but the black exploitation movie I never was exposed to. Which when you pitched this, you know, you said we you want to do a black black history month and you know i stated that i wanted to do more shows it kind of was a perfect fit mm-hmm. so we started putting things together and you said you wanted to do black exploitation i was all for it because it gave me an opportunity to basically expound and get out of my comfort zone of the genres that i'm typically used to reviewing and watching mm-hmm. and everything and educate myself on a on a subset of films that helps shape a lot of today's cinema and a lot of references in the african-american community and rap music that Mm -hmm. i didn't really i knew of but i didn't have extensive knowledge at the end of i think it's bring the noise uh the anthrax public enemy uh version of it i think somebody actually just i think might have been chuck d who blurts out yo i got black caesar at the crib yo and like, and that's one of these movies. And Blackula gets referenced a lot. Pam Greer is an icon from yeah. an era who went on to have a very successful career in Hollywood. Um, we covered actually one of her more modern movies, um, not that long ago, but we refreshed it um, for this month. Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown, which draws heavily from the black exploitation genre. You know, I mean, when you think about when you think about the gangster rap era that comes about in the late eighties, early nineties and dominates most of the nineties, like it, you know, like Kevin Nash talked about how it's 1996, 1997, and they're drawing from the burgeoning gangster rap scene to give color to their NWA wrestling NWO rather wrestling faction. That all starts with the black exploitation movies of the seventies, because what are they all talking about? in a lot of those things, the pimps where are the pimps from superfly among other movies so so you know i think black exploitation gets obviously a negative connotation people view it dimly because it never tends to portray black people in the world's greatest light um and i think these these three movies that we're going to talk about coffee superfly and blackula certainly have elements that that when you look on it with 2022 eyes, it's kind of funny. It's kind of laughable. But without them, you don't, you know, film doesn't evolve. But, you know, with I, I think these lend themselves to uh, the evolution of film, not, and not just black people in film, but film in large part, because a lot of white uh, producers, a lot of white directors took from this genre what they could and made their own thing out of it things that we loved so let's get into our first film this evening with that preamble out of the way 
We're talk about Coffee, starring Pam Greer. And the reason we're doing this one and not the one, not the obvious one that everyone would think we would do first, Foxy Brown. Uh, we're doing Coffee because actually this one came first. So Coffee is a 1973 black exploitation film written and directed by Jack Hill. Uh, if you don't know who Jack Hill is, Jack Hill uh, was an American film director of the exploitation genre. And several of his films later have been characterized as feminist works. By the way, Jack Hill, white guy. Um, <laughs> Legacy, Quentin Tarantino's company, Rolling Thunder Pictures, re-released Switchblade Sisters theatrically in 1996. Uh, in the introduction to the film's DVD release, Tarantino calls Hill the Howard Hawks of exploitation filmmaking. Um, he directed just a couple of uh, ones here to tell you about Spider Baby, mm -hmm. uh, very famous for its time from 1967. Uh the Big Dollhouse, a huge one in the women in prison genre of movies. The Big Bird Cage, another one. Coffee, and then Foxy Brown came out in 1974. And here's one for you, Jason. You ready for this? Go right ahead, man. The Swinging Cheerleaders. Oh, that's right <laughs> up my alley. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to revisit that later. Um, so uh, the legacy of this movie and find it here da, 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 da. am i on the right page the legacy of this movie is that uh one this one led to it was almost like remade in a way uh it led it led to foxy brown which is what everyone knows pam greer for from that era mm -hmm. so coffee is notable in its depiction of a strong black female lead uh something rare in the genre at the time and it is all and also in its then unfashionable anti-drug message so here's what happens in this movie. A nurse named Flower Child Coffin, but usually referred to as Coffee, seeks revenge against the people responsible for her younger sister Lubell's heroin addiction and the widespread violence in her city. Under the guise of a prostitute willing to do anything for a drug fix, she lures a drug pusher and a mob boss to their residence, killing them. After the killings, Coffee returns to her job at the local hospital operating room. After her shift, Coffee's police friend Carter offers to drive her home. Carter is a straight shooting officer who is not willing to bend the law for the mob or the thugs who have been bribing officers at his precinct. Coffee doesn't believe his strong moral resolve until two hooded men break into Carter's house while she's visiting him and beat Carter, crippling him. This enrages Coffee, giving her further provocation to continue her work as a vigilante, killing those responsible for harming Carter and her sister. So basically, Coffee's Batman. Um, Coffee's boyfriend, Howard, yeah. <laughs> Howard Brunswick, is a city councilman. Coffee admires Brunswick for his contributions to the community. Brunswick all announces his plan to run for Congress and his purchase of a nightclub. Coffee's, ne Coffee's next targets are a pimp named King George, one of the largest suppliers of prostitutes and illegal drugs in the city, and mafia boss Arturo Vitroni, a criminal associate of George's. Coffee questions a former patient, a known drug user, to gain insight into the type of woman king george likes and where he keeps his stash of drugs coffee shows no sympathy for the drug addled women and abuses her as she looks for answers with the information she gets from the woman coffee tracks down george and poses as a jamaican woman look i love pam greer and everything but that accent Oof. um uh coffee and the other uh poses as a jamaican woman looking to tr uh looking to trick for him george immediately interested in her exotic nature Hires her. One of the prostitutes becomes jealous. Later that day, Coffee and the other prostitutes get into a massive brawl. <laughs> which Coffee! is great. Which is great. Yes. Coffee wins, which attracts mob boss Patroni, who demands to have her that night, like you do. 
Coffee plans to murder Vatroni, but before she can shoot him, the men overtake her. She lies and tells Vatroni that King George ordered her to kill him, which makes Vatroni order George to be murdered. Vatroni's men kill George by lynching him from the neck from his car when they drive through an open field. Coffee then discovers Brunswick, her clean-cut boyfriend, is corrupt. How did she not see that coming? When she's shown <laughs> to him in a meeting of the mob and several police officials. He denies knowing her other than as a prostitute, and Coffee is sent to her death. Coffee seduces her would-be killers like you do. They try injecting her with drugs to sustain her, but she had replaced the illicit drugs with a sugar solution earlier. Because, of course, she did. Faking a, faking a high, she kills her unsuspecting hitman with a pointed metal wire she fashioned herself and hid in her hair by stabbing him in the jugular vein. Running She's also avoid... MacGyver. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Running to avoid capture, Coffee carjacks a vehicle to escape. Coffee drives to Vitroni's house, murders him, and then goes to Brunswick to do the same. He pleads for forgiveness, and just as she is about to accept, a naked woman comes out of his bedroom. Coffee shoots Brunswick in the groin with a shotgun, emasculating and killing him. See? Very feminist. Later, yeah. Coffee walks along the beach, having avenged her sister. So, I'm going to give you the first word on this, Jason, but before I do, this thing had a budget of $500,000 in 1973, 72, whenever this was shot, and it made $2 million. This is practically Star Wars. <laughs> by you know, today's numbers all right so what do you think of coffee well first i want to go i want to go off on a little tangent because this this one came out in 72 i believe uh mm -hmm. which is four years after the civil rights movement uh ended mm -hmm. uh so i mean you you think you take that into perspective because two of these all three of these movies came in within came out within five years of the civil rights movement ending and all of them made money. So that that in itself uh, speaks volumes uh, that, you know, you go from one end of the spectrum to the other. Now, Coffee, I, <laughs> I like this movie a lot. Um, mm -hmm. It was very disconjointed, though. Uh, it felt like you was watching just um, a lot of serial episodes <laughs> of a show uh, that loosely fit together. But. They had some decent action scenes. Um, mm -hmm. For like I said, you got to look at it through the through the lids of 1972, 73. So it it was it was interesting. Uh, and to see to see where this was where Pam Grier got her start, and this is what you know would actually kind of transition into you know Jackie Brown and everything, which uh, and that entire legacy that she made mm -hmm. is really interesting because a lot of people tend to forget where they came from but it's like she built a career on this mm -hmm. um so it, it was really interesting uh, it was very social commentary heavy mm -hmm. um without uh you're going to hear this a lot when we do some of these movies it didn't beat you over the head mm. It, it it done it and it was very up in your face but it didn't like lean too hard on it mm -hmm. but you definitely see the whole pimps hookers prostitutes whatever you, women of the night and <laughs> ladies of the night um and also you see a lot of racist dialogue mm -hmm. um the lynching with the car, I, I'm sorry, I cackled. Oh, God, Jason. Because, <laughs> no, because of how it was shot. 
mm-hmm. and it was an obvious dummy that they're dragging. <laughs> right. Like there was, I mean, I've not seen worse mannequin work since the end of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, <laughs> and That's a like, classic. and like, it, it was just like, and you just see this happening. <laughs> you just see this body just swinging all over the place. Like it's a sled going down the, like somebody being dragged down a hill on a sled. Mm-hmm. And then it's just like the, the very next thing when it stops, it's like, everything's, you know, everything is done off the practical. You have the live action again. And like you said, it was basically a shoestring budget, but mm-hmm. they definitely got the miles out of it. So, and it jumpstarted her career. I, like I said, this is, this is, my second favorite movie out of the three we're reviewing mm-hmm. um and it said a it said a high bar because this was the first one of the three that i watched it's the first one i watched too so i love this movie i think it's fantastic i actually think it's a tight little script um it you know again it's when we meet coffee she she's already lost her sister and she is out for revenge and she enters into a world that's bigger than what she knows. And along the way, she she's educated in just how deep the corruption goes, mm-hmm. how, how big it is, how much bigger than her it is. Um, there's a lot of conversations she has with the cop friend about like, well, you're the cop. Why don't you do something about it? And he's like, it, it, it's, it's one of those. We, I would love to, but there's only so much I can do with the little power that I do have. There's a lot of, there's a lot of vested interest in keeping this whole thing going. There's a lot of money involved here, and all we can do is try to win this war one one arrest at a time. But there's only so much of this I can do, and so there's so many, you know, like the John Wick movies of the world and all these like revenge movies where somebody has been wronged in some way. They feel like there's there, there is no justice but the one they make for themselves and so yeah. they take matters in their own hands and then it becomes this rev, this power revenge fantasy when we talk about power fantasies we often talk about like superhero movies you know all of us as little boys and little girls yeah. we see you know the big costumes and the capes and everything and we go we want to be those people but you know there's a power fantasy in the revenge plot too the re, the revenge type movie where you know you you try to seek justice the right way, but justice is blind and oftentimes um, crippled. And so, well, what if I just did it all myself, you know, and I could survive a hail of bullets and I somehow never run out of any of my own and and I take down the bad guys and justice is served. Street justice, that's what it is. It's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely fantasy. It's absolutely, you know, it's, it's absolutely something that is entertaining utterly unrealistic and that's the fun of this is that normally those are roles that are reserved for men but here you have coffee like any other character like i mentioned john wick before like that's usually the character that we see and you know they use it's usually stylized fighting and all of that here's just this really gorgeous black woman who's shooting the bad guys and she you know and there's scenes where like again she's not a professional fighter she's a she's a nurse and she gets her ass kicked a couple of times, you know, and she's able to, you know, use her wits about her. That's the other thing about this is that she's not just a physical force of nature like you see in so many of the other movies that I'm not going to be, I'm not going to lie about it, t- tend to bore me. Like, she has to use her wiles and her wits to get out of some really sticky situations. Like, she, uh, like, when she goes to kill Vitroni, 
she immediately gets taken down like that that fails yeah. immediately um and you know and she thought that she'd get the upper hand on him and like nope they saw her coming a mile away and beat the crap out of her and then it's like well i'm gonna die now and there are women who i think you know they talk about things like the male gaze and you know they say like the sexualization objectification of women uh, this is all they seem to be good for, except that when you're, you know, when you are surrounded by big, strong men who are all killers, you got to do what you got to do to get out of those situations. At least that's what's being portrayed on screen. And so that's what she does. And she wins in the end. You know, the, the, the final scene of this movie, the final scene with a bad guy is him begging her for mercy and she shoots him dead. So, um, I'm sorry, the, the, the first Vitroni, which is again, yeah. he begs her for mercy and she shoots him dead in the pool. And then when she goes to confront the boyfriend, and even though the boyfriend's starting to starting to convince her, maybe he he didn't have much of a choice. He was trying to you know trying to change things from the inside. Then the, then the white naked woman, good old whitey, walks out of the bedroom, uh, boobs akimbo, and <laughs> and coffee's like nah, bang, <laughs> dead, and it's great. It's a tight script. There's not a lot of waste in motion here. I, you said it no. was disjointed, and I don't know if I agree with that. I thought it all flowed very well. Um, I think I think Pam Greer plays a very charismatic character, and while a lot of the a lot of the um, performances from some of the actors here, not, not not the least of which Pam Greer, I think struck me as kind of funny like there's definitely a, like if you ever watch like the 19 you know black and white uh you know cop movies that like like the bugs bunny cartoons are based off of you know mm -hmm. and whatnot and like you never get me copper you know it's always a very stylized way of delivering lines like nobody really talks this way yeah. i'm listening to some of the dialogue readings in coffee and i'm like Phew, this this has not aged well but that's but that's like the worst thing i can say about this is some of the dialogue readings have not aged well. We would not direct people to <laughs> right now. Number one and number and, and number two, you know, it looks like it was shot in the seventies on a shoestring budget. But who cares? It has character. It has novelty. It has, you know, it, um, it it's so different than what we get now. We get the sleekest of productions that are just empty and bloated and just frustrating to watch. The Matrix. Um, and here you have this tight little script that doesn't often get talked about because it's part of the black spoil the evil black exploitation genre, where you have the you have one of the most ass kicking feminists <laughs> heroes that that people who are going like people who are trying to write ass kicking feminist heroes can't get this right. But here it is in coffee. It's all over that movie. It's near damn near perfect. Yeah, well, just to just to reiterate some things. When I say disjointed, mm -hmm. it it was the sharp cuts of scenes. Okay, where it, where it feels like there. The problem is the editing. Yeah, the it, okay. the, the editing is disjointed. Not not the story so much. Okay. It's it's just the the transitions uh, mm -hmm. because it's very sharp transitions. Yeah, it almost feels like it was made for like TV, like yeah. be commercial breaks. I get that. Yeah, that's why I was saying like you know this could be like a series. Mm -hmm. um, and also speaking on the cough character, it's very relatable. I guess you mm -hmm. could say because it's just an everyday kind of quote unquote superhero, uh, vigilante justice oh, no, that has a lot of, of stories knowledge. Where like 
the normal person has to go on this crazy adventure and has changed along the way. That's like the yeah. best storytelling. Yeah, and you see that it changes her. She goes mm -hmm. from this this nurse that you know is is grieving, has lost for her sister, trying to figure out, you know, trying to get get it a, a legitimate way to solve the problem, mm -hmm. and then which we'll see, you know, we see in two of these movies, the cor uh, police corruption that, you know, people could still say that's rampant even here in 2022. Um, yeah, I was going to say, how could you not think that this movie, it doesn't resonate today when, it, when right. like it's, you know, 50 years later or some shit and <laughs> nothing has changed. We're yeah, still, we we're st we you know we still have an antagonistic relationship between the African American community and the police. There's still corruption. There's still drugs. Yeah. We are nowhere. We are nowhere near anywhere close to being you know having progressed from the drug wars of the seventies. It's kind of both hilarious and sad when you think about it. Yeah, and you know you see and you see the the dynamics mm -hmm. um, between you know the corruption and. You know the politically get the political game, mm -hmm. and like you said, you look at, you know, a street level cop can only do so much. Right. When it goes higher up the chain, yep. when he's basically his limitations are, I can only do so much because the bigger picture is it's better for business because they're property, and you, you will see that in the uh, in Superfly when we get to talk that. But it, it's very street level. She has mm -hmm. to, like you said, she has to use her wits. She She's street smart mm -hmm. as well as. But she's know, also naive, which I like. Like I said, you know, yeah. and, and I hate to make this comparison because one, I'm starting to hate talk, to talk about these movies. But I, I think so people can un kind of understand where I'm coming from, where I think you're coming from with this, too. You look at someone like Captain Marvel or Ray from Star Wars, both cases where. Um, they got a lot of a lot of hate from from casual movie watchers because they seemed overpowered. They seemed mm -hmm. like everything came too easy. They didn't seem changed by the experience in any way. And that has nothing to do with their looks or agendas or everything else. It's that that's just bad writing. Your character right. should move from you know from beginning to the end of the film in some way. They should be changed by the experience. They should start out with a deficit of some kind and you know and have achieved that by the end. I mean, you can play with that structure to a degree and make some interesting films. But, you know, if you're looking for sort of just a broad general appeal popcorn feature, there's a really, really good structure that I just talked about uh, that works for people and generally makes people enjoy the movie. And Captain Marvel and Ray did none of those things. Captain Marvel was really no different by the end of that movie, except that she was more she was more powerful than she started. And she already started powerful. Um, and the haircut. And oh, yeah. And then there's Ray, who I defended it at the time, but I, I can see people's frustration with her where Ray's really not that different by the end of the trilogy than she started out with. She was, you know, she, the only thing that really changed about her is that she discovered her innate ability to use the force. And so she does over the course of three films. That's kind of it. You know, whereas someone like Coffee has this naivete about her you know she she starts off she's angry she's frustrated she wants revenge but she thinks this can she thinks if she just kills the drug dealer problem solved right. which I think is great 
You know, what a small, what is, what a way to start your character with this, this small look at the world that you think one drug dealer makes a difference. And you really do believe that. And then you're shown it doesn't, it, 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 it's a, it's a, it's a pebble thrown into an ocean. Um, it makes no difference at all because, you know, as the wire tells us, nothing stops drugs and hookers, nothing stops drugs and hookers season three um, or season two, whichever the one ends with the, with the drugs going one way and the hookers going the other. As they get off the truck. Um, so just to wrap up this discussion, uh, I, I I think I think because people um, they look they look at the black exploitation. I mean, look at the, the name black exploitation exploitation of black of black people. Like every like, there's a belief I think that every single one of these movies paints black people in just the worst light. But th yeah. that's like that's but that's like saying you know all movies paint white people in the worst light because. Uh, you know, there's you know white because white people tend to be villains in these things. Funny heroes too, you know. Yeah. And there's and there's a hero here, and I think it's a hero that um, that that should be lauded. Certainly better written than some of our modern, you know, kick-ass feminist heroes. So that's that's it. If there's anything else you want to say? Go ahead and say it. Otherwise, we can move on. Um, just that you know, with this, mm -hmm. um, you, you're going to you see the like I said, you see her change throughout throughout mm -hmm. and the night you know her, she's still naive thinking that you know taking down one drug lord does mm -hmm. does everything but you also see the stereotypical mm -hmm. um perception that still resonates today when you talk about <laughs> uh the black culture well, that's you the see thing. It, you see it's it always in these like, oh, you're, well. you're showing black people in the worst way. Clearly, somebody was acting that way, or they wouldn't have thrown that in the movie. Right. This isn't this isn't Birth of a Nation. They, <laughs> they were <laughs> they were drawing from at least some personal experience, and that's the thing. It's not like everybody in the movie, and I'm going to use a colloquialism here from that era, talks jive. Like the politician right. guy, talk, you know, Chris Rock made a point of saying this. He was like. Some, so I think somebody said to him, like, oh, you're so well-spoken. He was like, or he was talking about Barack Obama, sorry. He was talking yes. about Barack Obama, and he was like, he's so well-spoken. Well, of course he's well-spoken. He's an educated man. What do you want him to do? I'm going to write me a law today. I'm going to drop me a bomb. Like, it, the the tacit understanding, and when, what better place to find that than in a black exploitation film, of that you have educated black people who talk like educated people, and then you have people in the street. And it's not like you don't have that dichotomy among white people either. Right. You have... You know the Christian Graves of the world, you know billionaire, uh, philanthropist, BDSM people who, who speak okay. lovely, and then you have you know the trailer people. Hey, now <laughs> I take offense to that. You know you have uh, you have the poor white folks who speak you know particular dialect, a particular way, uh, and they, you know, and then in the middle there's the rest of us. So I, I don't I don't cotton to this argument that. You know the entire black exploitation genre should be thrown into the ocean. I think I think that's ridiculous. I think you lose a lot of film history when you just dismiss it out of hand. All right, before we continue, I want to take a break here and talk about one of our sponsors, one of our great sponsors here on the show. Uh, the coffee didn't need this, but many films like Captain Marvel and Rise of the Skywalker do. <laughs> it's Grammarly, Grammarly's 
for you listeners of Triple Feature, uh, is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. Grammarly's AI-powered products help people communicate more effectively. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free on Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and nearly anywhere else you write on the web. Grammarly corrects hundreds of grammar, punctuation, spelling mistakes, while also catching contextual errors, improving your vocabulary, and suggesting style improvements. To download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com slash W2M network. Again, it's getgrammarly.com slash W2M network to download Grammarly for free. All right, all you OGs out there, all you pimps. Now we're going to talk players and hustlers. Yes, we're going to talk Superfly from 1972, which is a neo-noir crime drama directed by Gordon Parks Jr. Gordon Parks Jr., uh, for those of you who don't know, he uh, has a couple, just a couple of movies to his uh, filmography. After Superfly, there's Three the Hard Way, Thomasine and Bushrod, and Aaron Loves Angela. I've only heard of one of those. Um, so he's best known for this one. Um the uh, the younger Parks followed in his father's footsteps after his father had success with the black exploitation hit Shaft. So there you go. There's Gordon Parks Jr. for you. Um, and this uh, stars Ron O'Neill as a as young blood priest, the African American co- cocaine dealer trying to quit the underworld drug business. It's best known for its soundtrack, written and produced by soul musician Curtis Mayfield, and um, and it actually has a sequel to it, Return of the Superfly. Uh, and a remake from 2018, which, by the way, yeah. so remember I was talking to you about Shaft, and I was like, I was trying to remember, like, I, I could have sworn this was released in theaters and all that, yada, yada. I meant Superfly. That's what I was talking about. We had it, a t- discussion when I was making sure what one we was watching. <laughs> pro- we, when we, you first pitched this, and I was like, making sure which one I needed to watch. He was like, the original. I was like, oh, okay, because there's a remake. So mm-hmm. that, okay, so... We finally figured out the movie you were speaking of. Yes, um, I, I was. I, it was killing me because, like, I didn't even remember the Shaft one, and now, I, now I know why because I was thinking of Superfly when I saw that. Anyway, um, so let's get into. Uh, hang on. Uh, despite the controversy surrounding Superfly's drug use, the production of the film made significant significant advances for African Americans. The Harlem community backed Superfly financially. And a number of black businesses helped with the production costs. Another quality that distinguishes Superfly from other black exploitation films was the technical crew, the majority of which was non-white, constituting the largest non-white technical crew in its time. Altogether, such an independently financed film ultimately had an unusually large financial backing. Um, so this thing had a budget of less than five hundred thousand, yeah. and it made more than thirty million. Yep, Star Wars once again. <laughs> yeah, and what was cool about this one was this was shot gorilla style. You you could tell mm-hmm. yeah. it was shot gorilla style because a lot of the people in the shots had no idea what the hell was going on around them. <laughs> uh, they just see, you know, probably just seen a camera following these these people around, and they're just reacting and just naturally. And it's most notably it's toward the end of the film when they're leaving the. Um, the uh, restaurant and he's trying to get out in traffic. Um, so yeah, this, I, I, I didn't like this movie as much mm-hmm. as until the last probably 30 minutes. Yeah. And then I was, I was hooked the last 30 minutes, getting to that last 30 minutes. The, yeah. It, it was, a, it, I slugged through, but that last 30 minutes to see like how everything came together. It, it really hooked me. And I, I started to understand and started to appreciate it more. 
So I want to quick read this to you because this is a this is a mixed bag film. Um, at the time of its release, there were many African Americans that were displeased from the images of themselves portrayed in films such as Superfly, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. By the way, have you ever seen Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song? No. Phenomenal. And Shaft. Junius Griffin, the head of the Hollywood branch of the NAACP, stated, We must insist that our children are not exposed to a steady diet of so-called black movies that glorify black males as pimps, dope pushers, dope pushers gangsters, and super males. Uh, Superfly resonated, however, <laughs> despite all of that, despite the intelligentsia saying this is bad, with many of the post-civil rights movement generation of African Americans who saw Youngblood as a new example of how to rise in the American class system. Several California organized crime veterans, including drug trafficker Freeway Rick Ross, have cited the film as an influence in their decision to take up drug dealing and gang violence. The Congress for Racial mm. Equality and the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People and other organizations attempted to block the film's distribution and push for more African-American involvement in Hollywood's creative process. The Student National Coordinating Committee also protested the film as a tool of white oppression. However, um, it's been suggested that the film's glorification of drug dealers served to subtly critique the civil rights movement's failure to provide better economic opportunities for black America, and that the portrayal of a black community controlled by drug dealers serves to highlight that the initiatives of the civil rights movement were far from fully accomplished. The filmmakers maintained that it was their desire to show the negative and empty aspects of the drug subculture. This is evident in the movie from begin from the beginning as Priest communicates his desire to leave the business. Nearly every character in the film, with the notable exception of his main squeeze, tries to dissuade Priest from quitting, their chief argument being that dealing and snorting are the best he could ever achieve in life. Uh, this has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Can you believe that? Based on like a paltry amount of reviews, but still, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, especially standing the test of time like that and still mm -hmm. having it. Uh, because you know you're you're being exposed to that much later than mm -hmm. when it was or it originally came out. So you're going to see, you know, you're going to have your dementors, the mm -hmm. the people that throw off detractors and everything. But this movie, it was really interesting. Uh, I like the idea that it's. I like. I love the idea that it's a critique of the the false promises of the civil rights movement. You know, and a, and a look into, you know, when you think about what is an often cited phrase among the black community over generations now, like the only way you're going to ever get out of the ghetto is through rap music, drugs or basketball or sports or whatever. And that's what this part of this movie is talking about is feeling like when you're born behind the eight ball and you have no resources, just nowhere else to go. This is what people turn to when they have no other skills and no other ways to um, to put those skills out into the world. And, it, you know, anyone would take a better option if one was afforded to them. And that's a lot of what the film talks about. So I, it's, it's such a funny thing because, again, it's always the, the argument always is, oh, these movies glorify, you know, these movies glorify crime and there's the worst aspects of society. And one of the things that a lot of like the rappers of the 90s talked about was like, we're not glorifying anything. We're showing a window to the world in which we've grown up in a world we had no control over and i i think my frustration with the, with sort of national conversation about these things is that i i would prefer I, I would i would prefer to see them out there and have them generate conversation and have them talk about some of these subjects that we're a little uneasy with to, to, to say the least Instead of trying to bury them and say, no, 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 we should never, we should never show the horrors of impoverished communities and what it does to people and the, you know, and it's a, you know, traumatic effect on 
people for generations upon generations. It's like, again, you're shutting down an entire, you're shutting down an entire argument. You're shutting down an entire part of the culture. Not to mention, and this is what I really wanted to uh, make the point of saying, I'm a big free market person, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a you know, big, filthy capitalist. And I'm always about, like, let the marketplace decide. And you put a movie like Superfly out there, and it's pimps and hookers and drug dealers and cops and dirty cops and all kinds of stuff that people find um, unsavory. And it's like, we shouldn't put this kind of filth out into the world. We should have controls over this thing. We should have censorship. And then you show it to people, and it's beloved. Like it makes tons of money. People go to see it. It, it, you know, it, people like take some of the iconography and, you know, use it for their own, you know, personality and character and, uh, and style and all of that. You know, th- this produces copycat movies and music for ages to come. And it's like, clearly people, this is the kind of thing people want to see. I think you should. You know, I I talk about this with Robert on Damn You Hollywood all the time, and then after this, I'll I'll jump into the plot. But the object is to make poopies make movies people want to go see that they'll pay a ticket for. And this, you know, the high minded, you know, censorship people who was like, "Well, we shouldn't put." How about you again? You, you let people decide, and we'll we'll figure out what should rise to the top, you know, and be seen by as many people as possible, and what should be ignored not you know try to put controls in there and you know and to force an agenda on people of this is good for you this is what you should watch i that's the thing that always irritates me like i don't care if i like it personally it's a matter of i think it should be there and you should let the masses decide for themselves this is this was the roland emmerich marvel argument that we talked about on tuesday like stop blaming stop blaming the studio for its existence blame the millions and millions of people who go to see these movies over and over again that make the other studios want to do more of them you wanted to jump in here and then i'll, I'll do the plot yeah i'm just going to do uh two quick points one is when you have poverty mm-hmm. and you see someone that is in a poverty stricken area mm-hmm. that's gaining money through nefarious means and you see that I that that image, you're going to want to strive for that image, right? Secondly, people, uh, this is what's what is big today. People say they want to see themselves represented in mm-hmm. in everything. There, there is an actual culture that this represents <laughs> that is alive today. That it's it's these these lower class black neighborhoods that where drug dealers rule everything it is a it is a a profession uh loosely in communities that Mm -hmm. provides for families you see and and drug dealers target young young african-american males that they can exploit and they can because if somebody under the age of 17 gets busted with drugs they're going to juvie not jail right uh so they exploit that and you you see a culture that it that this does represent and it, it i find it funny you know piggybacking on what you said people want to censor that but yet they also want to be representative in and Film and everything, and they only stuff. want to be represented though in a nice way. Black people right. be portrayed as absolutely perfect, just given for, given to humanity as a gift from God, and never making any. Everyone, black people should be Captain Marvel. That's what they want. 
so just, just be perfect and powerful. But what I'm saying is this also this shines a light on on the the poverty stricken areas. Yeah, sure. Uh, so and that's what people don't want to see. It's just like you said, everything. Everybody wants to see the rainbows and butterflies. Nobody wants to see right the dark corners of and society. And if you do show it, you have to show them like blasting out of poverty and becoming Oprah. And it's like, okay, but not everyone does that. Not everyone's talent. Not everyone's that talented. There, there's more. There's more Suge Knights and Snoop and Dr. Dre's than there are Oprah. God, I wish there were more Suge Knights, Snoops, and Dr. Dre's. Problem is, there's there's a lot more people who aren't even that talented. Yeah, no, I'm just people. saying. I'm just saying that. No, I, I know. I hear what you're saying, that, but that achieve <laughs> that achieve mm -hmm. success through gang banging and drug dealing. <laughs> And become national icons that are synonymous with the that then there are people that become Oprah. We we should live to be as talented as Tupac was. Yeah, you know, I I I 100% hear what you're saying, but like, <laughs> I think people people tend to focus on you know the toughness and the gangster lifestyle and everything. If they they never focus on the mental illness, um, that, that seems to just get ignored. But what what's in there, which is right at the center of all of that, that ever that often gets overlooked, is just how talented of a guy he was. Tupac was great. Like I wasn't always in love with his music, but you can't deny that he was a, a talented dude. All right, um, young blood priest, an African American cocaine dealer, enjoys a luxurious lifestyle in Harlem. He yearns to go straight, despite the fortune he makes. One day, Priest confronts Fat Freddy, one of his dealers, about money that Freddy owes and threatens to force Freddy's wife into prostitution, like you do, unless he robs a competitor. Although the timid Freddy abhors violence, he agrees and accompanies other members of Priest's family of lower-level dealers to commit the robbery. Priest discusses his plan to buy 30 kilos of high-quality cocaine with the 300000 he and his partner Eddie have, which they can sell for a million within four months. With such a big score, they can retire comfortably. Eddie argues that the crime is only uh, Eddie argues that crime is the only option left to them by the man. Good old Whitey. That night, Eddie and, uh, and Priest approach Scatter, a retired dealer who started Priest in the business. Scatter initially refuses to help Priest. Eddie threatens Scatter, demanding that he reveal his source if he will not supply them. But Scatter holds him at gunpoint. Priest diffuses the situation and persuades Scatter to help them, although Scatter warns that it will be the last time. Priest and Eddie are joined by Freddy, who turns over the money he stole. The next day, Freddy is picked up for fighting, and when he is beaten by the police, he reveals when and where Priest and Eddie are going to pick up the first kilo of cocaine from Scatter. Freddy attempts to escape and is killed when he runs in front of a car like you do. That night, after picking up the kilo from Scatter, Priest and Eddie are apprehended by several policemen. The lieutenant reveals that he is Scatter's supplier and that they have... Uh, they can have as much weight as they want and will be extended both credit and protection. Eddie is elated by the situation, claiming they are now set for life, although Priest is still determined to quit after selling the 30 kilos. Soon after the drugs are sold by Priest and Eddie's family, Priest's white mistress, Cynthia, is dismayed to learn that Priest has not returned her love and is planning on uh, quitting the business. The argument is interrupted by the sudden arrival of Scatter, who reveals that the real head of the operation is Deputy Commissioner Reardon. Hey! It's the cop's fault. Where have I heard this before? Who's trying right. to kill him for quitting. Scatter gives Priest a packet of information on Reardon and his family. Scatter is captured by the corrupt policemen who give him a fatal overdose of drugs. Both enraged and scared, Priest gives the information on Reardon and an envelope of cash to two mafia men and takes out a $100,000 contract on the man's life. Priest demands his half, 
of their profits from Eddie. After Priest leaves with the cash, Eddie betrays him by point by phoning the lieutenant. Priest has anticipated Eddie's duplicity, however, and gives the briefcase carrying the money to a disguised Georgia in exchange for uh, one full of rags. Priest is then picked up by the lieutenant and taken to the waterfront where he is confronted by Reardon. Reardon threatens Priest that he must continue selling drugs as long as he is ordered to, but when Priest refuses, the policemen begin to beat him. Priest overcomes his foes using karate, because of course he does, then reveals that he knows exactly who Reardon is. Priest explains that he hired contract killers to murder Reardon and his entire family should anything happen to him. The powerless Reardon then watches as Priest walks away free, giving the policeman one final glare before driving off to join Georgia. So this is a I love I love that it's been such a, an important film in the genre that it's inspired so many other ones. It's got an important place, I think, in film history. That's all well and good, but in execution, the film kind of drags. And yeah. the guy playing Superfly, uh, Priest, he's okay. He's definitely got a lot of screen presence and charisma, but uh, I don't know. This this thing clocks in at an hour, and a, half. an hour and a half, and unlike Coffee, which was also an hour and a half, but it did, but it felt breezy. This was a bit of a slog to get through. Um. Yeah. Till that and last it, 30 minutes. Yeah, the last 30 minutes are good. That first hour, like, I, I sympathize with his, um, with it, you know, the storyline of him wanting to leave the, leave the business. But, you know, I'm reminded of a, of a thing from the last Rambo movie where the Mexican uh, pimps are all talking to the, to the prostitutes. And they were like, every, <laughs> you will have a penis in you every minute of every day and you will go until you can't go anymore. And, Reardon kind of gives gives Priest that same speech. He's like, you're going right. to sell drugs to you die. Um, and I get it. There's a lot of allusions to slavery there. Um, you know, and this is obviously a film that's commenting on that uh, clearly negatively. And it's, it's, it's so it, I think where I was going with this, and I'll let you jump in here. It's a film that I think thematically works. I think, um, you know, in terms of having an agenda, something to say, a perspective, all of those things work at it. The execution's a little a little clumsy, a little clunky. That that's where I'm at with this. The the dialogue kind of takes you out of this um, mm -hmm. because because it, it's very forced dialogue. Yeah, um, I, and I think that's what. And then it becomes this this bigger than uh, Ocean's Eleven heist uh, thing <laughs> where you pass off the briefcase and. All that, and you got contract to kill. Uh, but then, you know, The Last Dragon, Bruce Leroy enters the picture. <laughs> uh, and, you know, show enough shows up. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, it, that, that first hour, about the first hour was like, I, I was, it was mind numbing. Um, mm -hmm. But once you start seeing the, the pieces come together, it becomes bearable. Um, yeah. But that first hour, um, a lot of the this this has the, my favorite favorite uh, musical set that sure. plays throughout um, Pusher Man, mm -hmm. uh, which is an absolute great song, mm -hmm. and it fits the and it fits this movie perfectly. Like this is the the movie for this song, Match Made in Heaven, um, and it, it's just one of those things that. He he sees, he sees the 
the light, the road that he's on, and he's trying to do good to better his life. And it's and he wants out. He wants he doesn't want the you know the constant you know running from the cops. Mm-hmm. Um, you know rival pimps and uh, pushers and everything. You see that here, and it's like you all, and he's constantly watching over his back, his shoulder, watching his back, having to do stuff like this, mm-hmm. like a drug dealer would normally do. And you see the the iconic dirty side of the drug world, um, and how it's not like. I'm trying to romanticized uh, I was, that a I, lot of people give. There's, hang on, I I don't want to play the clip. I just want to talk, but <laughs> you know, I'm gonna make a wire reference here. My second one of the night, as a matter of fact. But there's a bit in the wire where it's the Andre or whatever the character's name is, where he talks. He's in prison. And he's talking about the Great Gatsby. Um, I, I think it's that scene. I, doesn't matter. The point that he the the the, the speech that he gives is about how generation after generation of his family were in were were in drug dealing and he got into it because that's what his family did and you just and you do it and you live that life and you project an air of strength until the whole thing just strangles the life from you and you can't do it anymore and you either get yourself killed or you kill yourself or you somehow manage to get out of it um without dying but it's more likely that you will and that that speech always resonated with me um, and th- that I understand, you know, feeling like you're just trapped in this life. And that's what Priest is talking about throughout this movie yeah. is feeling like, you know, I, I, I have to project an air of strength. I've had to be this. I've had to be this thing. I've had to be this force of nature. And I've had to deal all of these drugs because I didn't know any other way to get out of my predicament that I was born into, which is all well and good. But, you know, I, you talk about the glamorization of the drug trade. Half of what these guys are saying is this all sucks. It sucked from the beginning. It sucks now. And I want to be done with it. This is the the whole, the driving force of this movie is it's one big score so that he can get out of this miserable life, which is about the only redeeming part of his whole personality and character in this movie is that he recognizes that he's done, he's had a terrible lot in life and he's done terrible things and he just wants it all to be over. And so this is the last desperate attempt to make that happen in the only way that he knows how. And all he sees around him, including the people he does drug, he deals drugs with, you know, his family, quote unquote, and the cops and everybody is, that's all he is. That's all they see of him. He's not a human being. He's, right. he's cattle. You know, he, he's a, an object to make money for a higher power. And that is what he's rebelling against. And like, and you say that out loud, and you're like, "There's no way this doesn't resonate with an entire generation of people who probably feel like he does." Yeah, well, I'm just saying the romanticizing of you know in today's culture, mm-hmm. you know, you know, you see these drug dealers that have like these expensive cars, the, these luxury lifestyles, but this shows the 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 flip side mm-hmm. because you see that like you said he's an object he is a he's a mary sue object <laughs> where like you you see him as just like a figurehead mm-hmm. there's there's no nobody really sees him as a person they see him as a means to an end yeah um uh you know if he's gone plug somebody else in he's replaceable yep 
Uh, just like he's, it's he's like a, a widget. Cog. Yeah, he's a, he's like a cog. Any, anything mm-hmm. he's there to serve one single purpose. That's it. Yeah, and he he realizes that, and he wants more out of life, and so he he wants to get out because he does want more out of life, and he realizes, his, you know, and it, and it speaks on a lot of different levels. It doesn't just speak as a as a pimp and prostitute and drug dealing movie. It, it speaks on human nature because he realizes that he's in this because that's all he's known in life. And he's trying to make a life for himself out away from the drug trade because he knows once he's gone, Mm -hmm. they're just going to plug somebody else into his spot. So we talked about the Mm -hmm. soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield. It's the thing that's most, you know, one of the things most well known about this. And do you know, Jason, where you can find the complete discography of Curtis Mayfield? Please tell me, Mark. I will. <laughs> you can find it on Amazon Music Unlimited. Don't you understand? And we are giving away a free 30-day trial of the Amazon Unlimited service. If you click the link in this podcast description of getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. Again, that's getamazonmusic.com slash W2M Network. You can experience a free 30 days of unlimited streaming of all kinds of Curtis Mayfield and ice tea. He was also your pusher. If you don't, you know, if you yeah. don't understand what I'm trying to tell you, he, he actually, he, he actually ripped that. off that lit, not lit. He sampled that, yeah. uh, that lick. Um, you can listen to all the other groups and rappers we've been talking about tonight. Big E and Tupac. Did you hear today that uh, Snoop Dogg bought death row records? Yeah. He acquires, he acquired that. And I, I was telling the wife about it and she was like, I don't know what death row records are. I said, get out of my house. Yeah, I was going to say, you're get not out, allowed. Whitey. You're, you're not allowed. You're not allowed get, to be in my presence. Get to Stephen Whitey. Um, get so. your Ritz cracker saltine ass out of my living room. <laughs> so anyway, if you would like to experience all the wonderfulness that was once death row records, uh, you can go ahead and click that link. Get amazonmusic.com slash W2M network. Uh, if, if after 30 days you want to keep it, you pay the monthly fee. It's right up there with Spotify and Apple Music. If not, you can cancel at any time. No fuss, no must, no contracts. And that brings us to our final film of the evening. Jason's personal favorite. The, yes, the, film, I I, the film I picked because I'm like, I got to throw Jason a bone here. And <laughs> I got to throw like, because initially I, I this whole show went through a, a variety of changes. Because initially I had Black Caesar on here. I had Truck Turner with Isaac Hayes. I had Foxy Brown. And then I was doing some research and I was like, no, 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 I can do this better. I can make this more representative of like true cultural milestones in, in this genre. And then I was like, and I got to do one for Jason. I got to do one that I know he'll like. And I was like, I've never never seen Blackula before. I have heard it referenced constantly in popular yeah. culture. Um, and I was like, I got, I, you know what? Jason loves the horror. I'm going to throw this one on there too. And it turns out this is actually a pretty monumental film comes out in 1972 and is directed by William Crane. Uh, William Crane is known for Brother John, uh, Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, and Nothing As It Seems from 2016, as a matter of fact. Wow. Um, uh, Let's see here. Back to Blackula. Um, It stars William Marshall in the title role about an 18th century African prince named Mama Walde, who is turned into a vampire by Count Dracula in 1780. 
Uh, Blackie was released to mixed reviews in the U.S., but was one of the top grossing films of the year. Uh, it had a budget of doesn't say. <laughs> it was the first film to receive. <laughs> yeah, uh, it was it was filmed on a handshake and a, and a cheeseburger. Uh, it was the first film to receive an award for best horror film at the Saturn at the Saturn Awards. Blackie was followed by the sequel Scream, Blackie Scream in 1973, and inspired a wave of black exploitation themed horror movies. Um. I'm going to read a little bit of uh, the aftermath and its influence. The box office success of Blackula sparked a wave of other Black-themed horror films. Um, the American International was also planning a follow-up called Blackenstein, but chose to focus on Scream, Blackula Scream instead. Uh, Blackenstein was eventually produced uh, by exclusive international pictures. There's actually, so I joked about like how this movie needs a reboot directed by Jordan Peele. Hey, guess what? On June 17th of 2021, it was announced that a reboot was in development. That it was being co-produced between MGM and Braun Studios, which is now Amazon. Um, and that uh, Taylor will also direct the film. How about that crap? Um, reception. Blackula received mixed two reviews on its initial release. Variety gave the film a positive review praising the screenplay, music, and acting by William Marshall. The Chicago Reader praised the film, writing that it would leave its audiences more satisfied than many other post-Legosi efforts. Gene Siskel of the Chicago Tribune awarded three stars out of four, calling it well-made and quite frightening. Yeah, half right. A, a review of Roger Greenspun in the New York Times was negative, saying anyone who goes to a vampire movie expecting sense in a is in serious trouble. And Blackula offers less sense than most. Seems a little unfair. In films and filming, a reviewer referred to the film as totally unconvincing on any level. That 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 doesn't acknowledge its charm, don't you understand? The monthly this is very charming. <laughs> The monthly film bulletin described the film as a disappointing model of what promised to be an exciting new genre, the black horror film. And apart from the introductory scene, the film conspicuously fails to pick up on any of its themes, more interesting possibilities, cinematic or philosophical. The film was awarded the best horror film title at the Saturn Awards, as I said before. Among more recent reviews, Kim Newman of Empire gave the film two stars out of five, finding the film to be formulaic and full of holes. Time Out gave the film a negative review, stating that it remains a lifeless reworking of heroes versus vampires with soul music and a couple of good gags. Um, all right. So, and on Rotten Tomatoes, it's about a 50%. All right, Jason, just give me a few words here, and then we'll get into the plot summary. I love this movie. Uh, <laughs> and, and watching this, I, I was... I, I was reminiscing about my love for you mark for putting this on here because this was right up um because me and you we tend to review some of the the more light-hearted films here on the network and this was this was wheelhouse in every sense of the word uh it had one of my the most racist yet favorite lines <laughs> Uh, when they're searching for him in a crowd, it was like, which one? How do you know which one it is? Because they all look alike. Um, which, <laughs> hey, it was a, it was an actual line in the movie. I know, I know, but it's and I was like, shot. well, I, when it said it, I was like, it kind of caught me off guard because <laughs> I was like, did did he just say what I thought he did? Sure did. Uh, okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this movie, uh, the practical effects were shoestringed, <laughs> but I, I think it had a, a really good composite story, uh, I guess, for this time period. Because like mm -hmm. I said, 
you can't be looking at this movie through the eye, the lens of 2022. You have to you have to step back and look at it through that lens in the 70s and the black exploitation lens. And this movie this movie has now gained a a, a very nice tiny little warm spot in my cold dead heart. Uh, this is a bit of a long plot synopsis, so bear with me. Here. <laughs> in 1780, Prince Mamawalde is sent by the elders of the Nigerian Abani African nation to seek the help of Count Dracula in suppressing the slave trade. It doesn't go as planned. Dracula <laughs> instead laughs at his request and insults Mamawalde by making open overtures about enslaving his wife, Luva. After a scuffle with Dracula's minions, Mamawalde is bitten by Dracula and transformed into a vampire. Dracula then curses him with the name Blackula, because of course he does, and imprisons him in a sealed coffin in a crypt hidden beneath the castle. Luva is also imprisoned in the same crypt and left powerless to help until she finally starves to death. In 1972, the coffin is purchased as a part of an estate by two homosexual interior decorators, because of course they are, Bobby McCoy and Billy Schaefer, and shipped to Los Angeles. Bobby and Billy open the coffin inside a Los Angeles warehouse only to become Blackula's first victims. At the funeral home where Bobby McCoy's body is laid, Blackula spies on mourning friends, Tina Williams, her sister Michelle, and Michelle's boyfriend, Dr. Gordon Thomas, a pathologist for the Los Angeles Police Department. Dracula is startled to notice that Tina appears to be a reincarnation of his deceased wife, Luba. On close investigation of the corpse of the at the funeral home, Dr. Thomas notices oddities with Bobby McCoy's death that he later concludes to be consistent with vampire folklore. Because of course he does. Blackula follows Tina after she leaves the funeral home, but unintentionally frightens her. Tina runs away from him, dropping her purse. In the process, he loses her when a cab strikes him while he crosses the street. This is hilarious, by the way, this yes. scene. Uh, the female cabbie, Juanita Jones, openly berates Blackula when she realizes he is <laughs> uninjured, which angers him enough for him to attack and kill her. Blackula continues... Uh, to kill and transform. By the way, in the remake, they got to get uh, what's her face from the Ghostbusters 2016 movie, Leslie. Um, Leslie Les Jones. Jones. Yeah, it'll be a crime against humanity if Leslie Jones doesn't play the cab driver in, a, in an exact recreation of that scene. Um, Blackula continues to kill and transform various people he encounters, including Nancy, a photographer in the nightclub where Dr. Thomas, Michelle, and Tina celebrate Michelle's birthday, and where Blackula shows up to return Tina's purse she dropped that night before. Uh, While well, Dr. Thomas answers a phone call from the funeral director, Mr. Swenson, who informs him that Bobby McCoy's body has gone missing, and dead bodies all just get up and go away. Tina is clearly taken uh, with Blackula. The vampire asks to see her again the following evening, but they are interrupted by Nancy taking a photograph of them together. Soon after, Blackula attacks and kills Nancy in her nearby home and destroys the photo she just developed which shows Blackula conspicuously absent because vampires can't show up in pictures. Don't you understand? The next evening, Blackula visits Tina at her apartment and shares with her how she, how he and his wife Luva were enslaved by Dracula and how he was cursed into vampirism. Boy, is this a tortured monologue, by the way. Yes. <laughs> Tina and this is the only one. This the the one part that dragged. Yeah, by sure, by far. Uh, Tina initially rejects Blackula's request for her to join him as a reincarnation of Luva, but she's also beginning to fall in love and ask the vampire to spend the night together. Uh, it's like a telenovela in that scene. My God. Dr. Dr. Thomas, his colleague, Police Lieutenant Jack Peters, and Michelle are meanwhile follow the trail of murder victims as Thomas begins to suspect a vampire 
to be the perpetrator. After Thomas digs up Billy Schaefer's coffin, the corpse rises as a vampire and attacks Thomas. The doctor fends him off and drives a stake through his heart. Thomas then calls ahead to the morgue and alerts Sam, the attendant there, to take the cat take the cabbie Juanita Jones's body out of deep freeze and leave the room and lock the door behind him. He rolls her body out, but distracted by a phone call, Sam neglects to lock the door. And while on the phone, Juanita Jones rises from her grave, immediately attacks and kills him. Dr. Thomas, accompanied by Lieutenant Peters, arrives at the morgue to find blood smears on the corridor wall near the payphone where Sam answered the call, but no sign of Sam himself. They walk into the exam room by the freezer where Lieutenant Peters sees a sheet covered lying on a gurney and pulls the sheet back to reveal Juanita Jones rising up to attack him. Dr. Thomas keeps her at bay with, with a large crucifix long enough to open the window blinds and expose her to the morning sun's rays, which quickly destroy her. That evening, Dr. Thomas, Michelle, Tina, and Joy drinks at the club when Blackula arrives to pick Tina up. Thomas uses the opportunity to question Blackula of his knowledge of the occult in general, like you do to people when you first meet them, and vampires in particular. Yeah. Thomas makes it known that the police are planning a search for the vampire's coffin before Blackula and Tina make their exit. The fact that Nancy, the club photographer, hasn't been seen since Michelle's birthday celebration is also discussed amongst them. Soon after, Dr. Thomas conducts a search of Nancy's house to find photo negatives of Tina standing in front of the invisible Blackula. He then correctly deduces that Blackula himself is the vampire they have been seeking and that Blackula and Tina are still together. Dr. Thomas rushes to Tina's apartment, finding them embracing. Thomas and Blackula briefly struggle, but Blackula nearly knocks Thomas unconscious and flees, killing a police officer in a nearby alley as he escapes. After reports of seeing Bobby McCoy walking the streets of Los Angeles come in, Thomas, Lieutenant Peters, and several police officers track Blackula to his hideout, the warehouse where Bobby McCoy and Billy Schaefer were first slain. They locate a nest of several vampires, like ninjas hiding in the darkness, including yeah. Bobby McCoy, and destroy them. But Blackula manages to escape. Blackula uses his vampiric powers of hypnotic suggestion to lure Tina to his new hideout at a nearby underground chemical plant, while Tom, Thomas, Lieutenant Peters, and another group of police officers pursue him. Blackula dispatches several of the officers, but one of them accidentally shoots and mortally wounds Tina. To save her life, Blackula transforms her into a vampire. As Blackula proceeds to brutalize many of the police officers, one of them remaining police officers locates the coffin and alerts Dr. Thomas and Lieutenant Peters. However, Peter kills Tina with a stake, believing that Blackula would be in the coffin instead. Devastated at losing her again, Blackula tells Thomas and Peter there is no need to pursue him further, and he willingly climbs the stairs to the roof where the morning sun destroys him. Oh, how tragic. All right, Jason, I'm going to let you kick off the review of this thing since you loved it so much. Well, um, first and foremost, uh, I don't know how they didn't think Blackula was a vampire. I mean, that kick-ass cape. <laughs> <laughs> and, the mutton, and, the mutton, and the mutton chops dead giveaway uh, because for some reason when he when he wasn't in his vampire form the mutton chops were gone when he became a vampire the mutton chops was back the cape was on full full display uh i love the the fact the one guy keeps asking to buy the cape uh because he because he liked it so much sure uh and, and i i understand i mean i want a cape now just to you know, go out, go out on the town and have drinks and listen to some live <laughs> live jazz music. Sure. Um, but yeah, this was this was very interesting. Um, and this is, if I'm not mistaken, I read somewhere this is one of the first times that a flamboyantly gay couple was uh, put on film together. Uh, I don't know if it's true, 
but I, I remember reading that in some of my research. I came across that um, when they purchased it, which was really interesting. And this this was a love story. Is this this was all about love, Mark Rappage. Mm-hmm. And love can conquer all. Practically a Shakespearean tragedy. Without love, Blackula cannot exist. He lost two loves of his immortal life. So, but yeah, it was a fun movie. I mean, without this movie, you wouldn't have the Jordan Pills. You mm-hmm. wouldn't have the scary movies, the Wayne's brothers doing the scary movies. And I mean, I say that jokingly, but seriously, I mean, the scary movies were kind of <laughs> the satire. The, they're like naked gun movies. They're, they were a satire for that poking fun of themselves and other movies. And they were profitable, or at least the first two. Um, and it's fun. It was, this was my favorite movie of the three. It was a love story and it, it shows the, the transgressions of love Mm -hmm. and how vampires can love even not having a soul. They experience love, Mark Radledge. What I liked about this movie, and, and you brought this up to me when you were chatting about it, was the social commentary of this. Yeah. I mean, this is yet another black power fantasy. It's you know, it's a black person. And we, we talked about this before about representation, wanting to see yourself portrayed on screen, but not always in the same way. You know, why can't this? This is the answer to the question. Why can't a black person be? you know, a famous icon of the horror genre like Dracula or Frankenstein or the Wolfman or the Mummy. Why does it always have to be a white guy? And so here you have a very serious actor trying his best with the material that he's given to portray this character and portray him with menace. And and it's an interesting take on the character because, you know, he once he gets turned into a vampire and he gets up first, he's, he's driven by just a desire to drink blood because he's been um, in the coffin for, you know, hundreds of years. But then once he sees Tina and he realizes, Oh, that's, that's my wife reincarnated. That's his sole focus. Like this isn't even about if he could get away with not eating, you know, drinking blood, he would have, he was just, he just wanted his wife back. That's this, the, the whole driving force of this movie is, um, him wanting to reunite with with the soul of his wife and be complete and that he was lost without her. But the other thing I like about this movie is it kind of reminded me of Spiral and you know the Saw movies in that at the heart of this thing is a detective story. You know, you have a murderer on the loose and then a lot of it is just this cop story about, you know, who this murderer is, how is he doing what he's doing and where can we find him and bring him in for justice. And I like a good, you know, pulpy, noir cop story. The last thing I want to bring up, and it's probably my favorite scene of the movie, um, much like what you were saying, you know, it, 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 it was hilarious to me in a very ironic way. Um, the doctor goes to speak to the lieutenant. And you can see that they get on and respect each other. But the lieutenant still, it's the 70s, he's white, still has some skepticism about about the yeah. uh, the African-American community. And so... The, and so the doctor's like, yeah, this whole thing is suspicious. These boys, they couldn't have died in a natural way. I've got concerns and I need to see, I need to see some more reports. And the lieutenant goes, so it's the Panthers, right? It's gotta be the Panthers. 
Well, <laughs> and you could see you could see the doctor's face just completely fall off. It's like he, you know, and he even says to me, he's like, right, because the Panthers are known for biting people's necks and drinking their blood. And like he just rattles off this whole thing, you know, that it's not like the Panthers at all. And you know, but this cop so wants to pin these murders on the Panthers, he can't even stand it. And I was like, okay, that's that movie commenting on. Even with white people you get along with that are not actively assaulting the black community, there's still that prejudice. There's still that skepticism. There's still that desire to make sure black people, as, as they said in Finding Forrester, only let you go so far and then stop. You know, white men in power are not willing to trade off that power structure and allow people, you know, allow to share that power with any other community. And they were talking about that in the 70s, clearly, because we're still talking about it now. Yeah, well, one thing I have uh, I take issue with of what you said, Mark, is putting this in the same category as Spiral because, no, this is 10 times better than Spiral. <laughs> okay, Spiral well, was a shit show. Was there not murders um, and an investigation, J Jason? St still, that it doesn't. <laughs> Blackula does, is, is too good of a movie to be, be associated with. Spiral. Okay. I mean, you could pick other movies that okay. are, I mean, me and you could direct a movie better than Spiral. <laughs> um, that would be the second time this week somebody from my own podcasting network has suggested that we make a movie because of the way things are working right now. Ro uh, Robert and I decided that we were going to pick a in, in public domain IP and see if we can get money to put it on the streamer. Well, I mean, me and you already talked to um, a director. We know me and you have connections with a director to <laughs> film right. to film it. So that's right. We're, we're big we're, time now. We're we're halfway there. <laughs> um, but yeah, this is this movie. It 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 perceives itself on the surface as one thing as mm -hmm. a black horror movie, right? But at the heart of it, it's a it is a love story. It's he wants. He just wants peace. Mm -hmm. He wants he wants that he's yearning for that love and he wants wants that peace and he wants to live his eternal life with the kindred spirit of mm -hmm. of his wife. Notice and notice he only attacks people after the initial after he kills the, the gay guys. He only kills people trying to maintain the secrecy of his identity. Like he kills the photographer woman because he doesn't want to be found out that he's a vampire. Because um, he does appear, appear in pictures. Right. Yeah, um, he kills the cabbie because the cabbie's like in, assaulting him at the time. You know, um, it, it it could be argued that that was like a self defense moment. So like, and then and then it's not until he's pursued by the cops that he goes crazy and starts killing cops left and right. Like he never like there's really other than the very first time, and that is as soon as he has risen out of the coffin, um, and you know it has been starved for centuries on end. He doesn't. There's never really a scene of him just attacking people because he must drink blood. It's always in the service of something else happening in the film. Self-preservation, yeah, basically. So yeah, I mean, and like I said, like we've discussed, it's at the at the it perceives itself as this really black um, horror movie that is a different take on Dracula when it's within 30 minutes of the movie it takes that turn <laughs> and you're like okay and it, it's intriguing how they done it and I, I i'll commend the director on it because how it was marketed um how it was perceived 
but at the bare bones, it's a totally different movie. And mm -hmm. yet it's still a beloved movie. And yeah. that's what's really ironic about it is because, you know, you look at it as the, the black horror genre. But if you stripped it down and looked at the film craft, it is not a horror movie at all. <laughs> There's one scene that barely qualifies as creepy, let alone scary. And that's when the cab driver rises from um, from the morgue and comes down the hallway. And the only reason why that's even remotely scary, remotely scary, is because of the flashing lights. And so there was it was close-ups of her corrupted face, flashing lights, flashing lights, flashing lights. And so and you know, and so it, it's like it would have worked well in 3D. But that's about the only time. Like like the other kills in this are not in any way gross or horrific at all. So. All right, Jason, I think that does it for our triple feature of these uh, great <laughs> 70s exploitation movies. Did you have fun talking about these? I loved it. I, I can't wait till we revisit another triple feature in this genre next year. Absolutely. We've already got our next year's one plan, but let's, uh, let's stay focused on what we're doing this year. So we've done a couple of these now. We've got a few more left. I'm going to quick pull up the list here. Uh, so we're going to take a left turn at Albuquerque here on February 20th. We're actually going to, uh, pull ourselves out of this particular genre. And we're going to look at a director, a, uh, storied and famed and honored director, Spike Lee, uh, big in the African-American film, black cinema film, uh, genre. And we're going to look at do the right thing, which is one of my favorite movies. Malcolm X, which is fantastic, and what Denzel Washington should have won an Oscar for. Yes. And Old Boy that Jason picked. Um, and then, and I'm going to say this again, Jason, because you, you can't get out of it, okay? You got to, you got to own up to it, son. We're going to do another type of. We're going to do a more modern triple feature of exploitation movies, as picked by Jason Pooty Tang. The ladies' man, and what I picked, Soul Plane. Because if I have to watch Booty Tang, which I've never seen before, that I'm making Jason watch Soul Plane, which has been described as quite possibly the worst movie ever, <laughs> ever captured on film. So okay. we've got, yeah, we've got the Spike Lee one next, and then we've got that, and that wraps up. Um, we've got some re airs as well to celebrate Black History Month. We've got the Everyone Loves a Bad Guy for The Wire. Uh, we've got the um, Long Road to Ruin for the Beverly Hills Cop trilogy. And we've got two body count re-airs. So uh, we've got plenty more celebration of Black history and Black culture coming up before the end of February. But that's what we'll be doing new and uh, live here on the Rattle and Broadcasting Network. But that's not all. The Super Bowl is this Sunday. So who's the Super Bowl between, Jason? It's, what is it, the Bengals uh, and who else? The, the Cincinnati Bengals and the Rams. Oh, Kurt Warner's Rams, you say? That is correct. That's, that's why... That, that was ironic how this played out. Yes. So we will be doing a triple feature after the Super Bowl ends. Jason and I will jump right on here and we will do um, National Champions, which uh, is on PVOD right now, uh, which came out late last year. Nobody saw it, but it was, it was it's out there. Um, American Underdog, the Kurt Warner story. And then because Jason insisted because of its locale to his current living situation we are marshall starring matthew mcconaughey in addition to that jason will be with alexis and i talking peacemaker season one and then um we're if this is going to be a pre-record situation 
So we're recording on the 28th, but you won't hear it until St. Patrick's Day. Jason and I will be putting the very, very first Leprechaun movie on trial, which I am. I have had that as like my St. Patrick's Day pick for a few years now. But, you know, I either let Sean pick or something else happens and they can't do it. So I made it a point this year and I'm like, we have to do at least one of the Leprechaun movies for St. Patrick's Day. And why not get the get the resident Irishman um, <laughs> to, to join in in the in the festivities? Yep. I uh, do when I initially proposed to Jason was like, you're not making me going to do a long road to road. There's like 87 Leprechaun films. Like, no, no, no. We just need to talk about the first one. Yeah. Yeah, it was. There's a lot of them. <laughs> yep. All right. That so that's that. That's all the Jason stuff. Um, we are. This week was a fun week. We did. Uh, Jason and I did Shaft. We did. Um, Robert Winfrey and I talked Moonfall. Uh, we reviewed the cor- new Corn album last night. We re-aired our Batman v Superman on trial because Batman tickets went on sale today. Saturday we've got a re-airing of I said uh, like I said Body Count. Uh, Sunday, we've got a re-airing of Warcraft, plus that triple feature that I mentioned. And then we kick off Valentine's Day week and Uncharted week with uh, myself and Ronnie Adams doing a comic strip for Marry Me. The new Jennifer Lopez movie, Marry Me, with Owen Wilson is actually based on a webcomic of the same name. So we will compare the comic to the movie and see how that goes. Jesse's got a source material with Ronnie Adams for the Uncharted book. On Tuesday, uh, because unfortunately, Jason has no luck at all. The Devil's Light, which was what we were supposed to review, I believe that this week got yeah. kicked into like I got kicked all the way into October. So instead, Robert Winfrey and I will be doing a DMU Hollywood for two streaming movies: the new Steven Soderbergh movie Kimmy, which is on HBO Max, and Big Bug, which is a French foreign movie from the director of Amelie on Netflix as of tomorrow. So that'll be our DMU Hollywood review. We are going back to Lordy Versity on Wednesday with Humanimals. Uh, and then on Thursday, as Jason likes to call her, the MVP of the Rattledge and Broadcasting Network, right. Melissa Rattledge, who has made me now watch all three Fifty Shades movies. She's read all the books from every perspective. She's the resident uh, authority on smutty novels. She'll be coming on Long Road to Ruin. It'll be just me and her talking the Fifty Shades trilogy, which will be a lot of fun. And then uh, sh- then over the weekend, we've got another re-airing of Body Count. We'll have, a, we'll have an alternative commentary for the uh, Elimination Chamber in Saudi Arabia. And then since my wife will be gone for the weekend and I have nothing else to do, I'm going to record with Harry Broadhurst because why not? Uh, in theory, we'll be doing this promotion that he seems to like, AIW. And the show is called You Know What? I'm Not Leaving. Sure. Um, and this one you may have actually heard of. Uh, NWA Power Trip. Matt Cardona will be vying for the NWA Heavyweight Championship against what's his face? The Trevor the, Murdoch. Trevor Murdoch, thank you. Uh, and then Sunday, we've got the Beverly Hills Cop Long Road to Ruin. Um, we've got the triple feature of Spike Lee stuff. And then in theory, this will be the last thing I announce, the guys from Life is Like a Game Show have been haunting me to do to review quiz show. So in theory... Late at night, I will, after I'm done with Jason, I'll record with them and we'll be doing an on trial for the movie quiz show. I'm sure it'll be an absolute nightmare. So, <laughs> I would, I would second that. Yeah. Um, I'm sure by the end of it, I'm, I'm going to want to walk out into the woods to live deliberately. But hey, I never say no to anybody. So, yeah. Speaking of which, um, 
I didn't, I don't have it on my calendar yet because it may not actually happen, but I got asked by one of my friends who's been on here before, but isn't a regular part of our shows to review um, Death on the Nile. So if she's actually up for it, we can get it done. That'll be coming possibly next week as well. Jason, I hear you like to do fantasy football. Yes, you can find me on the Segna Short Podcast where me and uh, host Tyler Louder are going through our buy, sell, trade, have lunch with, uh, <laughs> um, swipe left on Tinder, uh, whatever. Yes, buy, buy, sell, uh, keep, store on a shelf, refrigerate. Yeah, uh, break. <laughs> Break in case of emergency uh, <laughs> reviews where we're going through every division currently, team by team, mm -hmm. uh, and picking three players, essentially, who will buy, sell, keep in the dynasty format of fantasy football. Um, that's that's pretty much it. Yeah, uh, did you guys of record tonight before, uh, before we uh, No, we, uh, we took, we're on a little bit of break. Uh, had some personal stuff come up. So we're... We have not dropped a new episode, but hey, we're we're definitely in the archives. You can find us on all your favorite platforms, as and also here on the W2M network. So, if you're into fantasy football with the Super Bowl coming up and a lot of new leagues kicking off, definitely go give us a check, uh, like, subscribe, and comment. All right, folks, thanks for joining us here on Triple Feature in our celebration of Black History Month as it continues throughout the month of February. For Jason Teasley, I'm Mark Rattledge. Be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs> <laughs>